This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I know this is a big deal. Um, The Sands & Associates has done a great deal of work Mm -hmm. and research on this. And and you've released a survey uh, uh, that you've sent out and that it is accessible for everybody. Um, And there's some pretty alarming things to know about debt and the particular sort of group or age group that uh, you're most concerned about right now. Yeah. So, the, Elena, we're so proud of, of this piece of work that we've, we've just issued a, a press release um, on January 28th of, of 2019 here. It's our sixth annual consumer debt study. And what's great about this is our scale as the largest licensed insolvency firm in BC, uh, we've got the ability to survey our clients and get a really representative look about what are people in BC facing um, in terms of their debts? You know, what drives them into debt? What are the types of behaviors? How do they feel about that situation? What remedies do they use to deal with their debt? And then how are they again in the future? So we released this survey. Um, I've been on the media the last couple of days, radio, TV, I'm speaking about some of the insights. So I'm really thrilled we can give some of the, the background on the survey in today's segment as well. You know, and I think the number one most important thing or beneficial thing about this kind of information is that folks who haven't, who are reading it for the first time, this might be their little glimmer of hope mm-hmm. knowing that they're not alone. That's exactly it. You know, the number of people who come in and then they, as soon as we talk and I tell them, you know, there's 100,000 people in Canada last year that did a bankruptcy or a proposal and their their job, you know, falls to the floor. They believe they're the only person that's suffering, the only person that's been overextended. Because it feels like that. It does, yeah. yeah it can feels be. like that. Yeah. Okay, so what did you, what did you, let's talk about the parameters. So it's the... Um, it's the sixth annual. You said mm-hmm. that, yep. and you talked to sixteen hundred British Columbians. Yeah, exactly. So we, we sent it out to about six thousand of our past clients, and we had about almost seventeen hundred um, completed surveys. So a pretty strong response. That over twenty five percent, which told me, you know, people are willing to share their stories, share their insights. And we had a number of people actually come forward to be full case studies in the report. So I've got four uh, full page write ups of individuals talking about their situation. Oh, cool. So it is something that people wanted to talk about. Right now, I think one of the key key insights that we got from the survey here was a really alarming red flag um, that's a bit of an emerging issue in the age group of 18 to 39, which we've talked about as kind of the millennial um, generation. So it's kind of a wide range, but it's people that came of age, you know, right around the, the turn of the new century. And the trend is that this demographic is seeing a lot of societal pressure to fit in, including spending on things to impress others and including spending on events to impress others. And when we compared that to other demographics, it was three times as high um, the pressure people felt in the millennial demographic, you know, just to fit in, just to keep up with individuals. And, you know, if, as I think about it, I'm like, that's got to be social media, right? It, it's got to be trying to live an online life, seeing, a, you know, this conception of, of, you know, what I should be doing, what I should be having at a certain point in my life. And millennials especially feel a lot of that pressure to fit in. 
Interesting, uh, because often you think millennials, or at least sometimes I've heard that, you know, that they don't care about stuff. They don't care mm-hmm. about this and they don't care about that. But this sort of counters that attitude that they care a great deal to the point that they're putting themselves in in uh, precarious situations financially mm-hmm. as a result of caring so much. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, to your point, Elaine, there might be a, a great cohort of millennials who are not focused on what sure. other people think and so on and so forth. And thank God those folks haven't been my clients. Right. Um, but a lot of folks who have been my clients, you know, they have self-identified as saying that, yeah, there's been a lot of pressure, a lot of financial pressure, and that's kind of put me behind. Sure. What we thought was also really concerning about this demographic too, the 18 to 39, um, is they knew they had debt issues. And, you know, a lot of folks, when they have debt issues, um, you know, they're not sure where to turn. And in the entire survey, it was about 20% of people said, you know, I delayed getting help from my debt because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what help was available. So it was 20% in the general population. It was more than double that in the millennial cohort. So it was over 40% of people knew they had a problem and they just didn't know what to do about it. They struggled. They felt stressed out. And sometimes that extended for up to two years. Wow. And that tells me that they were unwilling to ask for help or insight from anybody, whether it be family members or family or parents or each other, right? Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, part of it, there's there's a fear of being judged, and that's, you know, at, at all demographics, but um, it was just really striking that it was such a significant divergence between, you know, f- over 40% of millennials not knowing that there is help available and where to go and find that help and maybe find that, themselves in debt. Sorry, maybe mm-hmm. that non-traditional media too, right? That that, that that exists for them. They're not doing the, regu- you know, the stuff mm. that we've all been doing right. uh, for a long time. So, yeah, interesting. And that's, yeah, information for you guys for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we also found some really good insights about how behavior changed. So before going through a bankruptcy or a proposal, you know, how are people behaving and using credit? Um, and then after, you know, did it have the desired effect that people's credit habits are a lot better? And the answer is yes, <laughs> it, it did have the desired effect. Um, so a couple of statistics here. So before people had dealt with their debt, either through filing a bankruptcy or a proposal, almost half, so about 49% of respondents said they used credit for necessary expenses that they didn't have enough income to cover. Hmm. So this is on that monthly basis. You're getting a cash advance for your rent or you're putting the groceries on credit card. Your regular expenses, almost half of people were using credit on a cash flow basis. Um, And more than a majority, 54% of people said they used credit for purchases when they didn't have enough cash. So they knew it wasn't a case of just convenience and it wasn't just everyday expenses. It was purchases where, hey, I know I can't pay this off, but I'm I'm using credit anyway. So, So not a good behavior. Wow. Uh, now, after someone going through a bankruptcy or a proposal, one of the most rewarding parts of my job is counseling, where we can talk to people about their behaviors, give them good tools, techniques for you know shopping and and being responsible and things like that. Uh, so after dealing with the with their debts, um, almost half of people, so 48% this time, said they never used credit if they can avoid it. And that's hmm. that's awesome, right? I have a lot of folks coming in, they say, you know what, I got myself into trouble and in the future, I'm going to live without credit. Um, and not to say everybody has to live without credit, but it can be a very good best practice if you're able to live on a cash cash flow basis, have a little bit of savings each month, and about half of people after they had dealt with their debt were able to do that. Um, It was only about 9% of individuals, so still more than I would like, but just 9% as opposed to over 50 that were still using credit for some of their regular expenses. Interesting. So what kind of debt did, did was there, a, was there a parameters for the kind of debt these folks had? You know, for the most part, it's your standard credit card, lines of credit, um, some student loans and income taxes. Okay. Um, but a lot of the time, it's just, you know, 
consumption of life. So over a period of time, a few hundred dollars extra per month adds up. So especially in the younger demographics, the amount of total debt they were dealing with was typically in the range of twenty-five to forty-nine thousand dollars, which is a lot. It's, it is. It's a ton, right? Oh man! Imagine that again—a twenty percent interest, even on the low end. Your interest costs alone are four or five hundred bucks a month there, yeah. and that's just to get you to tread water. Uh, and definitely, the debt amounts trended upwards as you know people were older in age. So senior citizens actually had the highest amount of debt, um, and that's you know rather concerning because typically their income is quite low. But it speaks cynically to the point that they had a lot more time, <laughs> to, you know, to accumulate debt over time. That's true. So typically, my older clients tend to have a little bit of higher debt before they come in. Interesting. And what gets them into these uh, into the situation? It's a lot of things that you would have thought. So for most people, it's, you know, life is going great and then there's a shock to the system. And I found it so fascinating, the shutdown of the U.S. government, because these were all very good middle-class jobs, you know, oh, government yeah. job, you can depend on the paycheck. And you would think people would be able to save, to save money and be able to, you know, go without a paycheck or two. And it really showed how perched on the knife edge just about everybody seems to be that after one or two missed paychecks, people are rationing their necessary medications. They're, you know, at risk of having their hydro cut off or being kicked out of their apartment. So a lot of people are operating without any safety net. If there's any shock to the system, they just can't withstand it. Yeah. So within our survey, uh, you know, the number one cause was overextension of credit and financial mismanagement. So this was about 27% of people said, you know what, I just got too much credit. I didn't manage it appropriately. Um, and basically it's, it's all my fault, uh, which I tend to try to dig more deeply on that. And as we look at some of the other causes, they are all triggering events. So oftentimes overextension of credit is combined with a job loss. That was about 16% of people. So, you know, even if you have EI, it's not going to be at your full wage and who knows how long a job loss is going to persist. Right. Um, the next most prevalent cause at about 12% was illness, injury, or health-related problems. So even though socialized medicine in Canada, we don't pay to go to the doctor, um, still, if you need specific therapy, specific drugs, some things aren't covered. Exactly. Um, as well as your time off from work, you yeah. know, who replaces all of that income. Even with disability benefits, they're usually not your full amount. Um, so illness of either yourself or a close family member can be something that can tip somebody into insolvency. Yeah, or depending uh, on the injury, how you got it, mm -hmm. how it's impacting yeah. your work, right? Yeah, is it a work injury or not? That and, makes a big difference. Yeah, that can speak to whether you're compensated appropriately. Um, and the last one is something we, we see quite a bit. It's marital or relationship breakdown. Um, so suddenly you've been living as you've been living as two people and suddenly uh, you both have to reestablish yourselves. You've got to divide some family debt, some family assets. Sometimes there's lawyers involved, which are never cheap if you're if you're splitting up and having to use lawyers. Um, so definitely that's one of the prevalent causes. So most people, again, they said they overextended themselves and they said it was all their fault. But I tend to look a little bit more deeply and say usually there's some triggering event. You know, we didn't follow, follow it up in the survey here, but there's sometimes some gambling addictions. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's shopping addictions. There can be some pathologies where, you know, debt is just one part of a series of challenges that the person is facing. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what's available, everything is available. I mean, there's very little that you can't get today. Mm -hmm. anywhere, right? Yep. So that would add to it. Now, what kind of warning signs did you, were you able to sort of delve into that a little bit in terms of the debt warning signs that folks or that you were able to see as a mm -hmm. result of talking to them? Yeah. And you know, the, the report runs to 20 pages plus. It's available on our website. I encourage people, I hope they, they can go and, and read some of it. Um, but yeah, definitely the most common warning signs, the first one was overwhelming stress. So if you're feeling really stressed about your debt, probably there's a reason for that. There's something that's driving you. And it was a vast 
vast majority of people said that they worried about their debts constantly. It did not get out of their head. They knew they had this debt. They didn't know what they were going to do to pay it. They tried to think through all these different scenarios, but the overwhelming stress was what they felt. Yeah. Um, the second one, and I was encouraged to see this because to me it is a warning sign, is if you're only making minimum payments. So when I hear people saying, and sometimes overhear conversations, oh, I'm fine, I always pay the minimum or I pay a little bit more than the minimum, all I can say is you're on the hamster wheel at that point, yes. right? Minimum payments, so we say often, you know, $6,000 of debt is the 40-year plan on minimum payments. So I like that people are self-identifying if they see they're only making minimum payments that they're not getting ahead. Um, you know, the final two were accumulating more debt. So if they see that at the end of each month, that total debt balance is going up rather than down, um, that's a bad sign. Um, and then finally, collection calls, which I might have thought would have been up near the top, but no, typically people really self-identify. They know the warning signs a lot more quickly than being delinquent and having a collection agent call them. That's really good. So again, um, you can get, uh, if you want to go into this study a, a bit deeper, uh, as um, Blair mentioned, www.sans-trustee.com uh, forward slash how we help debt study. Mm-hmm. So that'll get you there. Um, and the there's interviews and all that. that and, and can I access that stuff oh, yeah. easily? Yeah, yeah. There's the, the full write-ups of the four clients who were profiled, as well as there's some videos as well. Great. Now, if you think that you don't need to read the read the survey because you already know you're in trouble, this is what you need to do. Uh, it's nice and easy. Check out the website, sans-trustee.com. They've got a lot of questions and answers for you on, on next steps. Or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we don't often talk about business owners. We're usually talking about individuals, mm-hmm. people who run into debt and then have to figure out how to deal with it. Um, but I thought this was a really good good topic. So there are mistakes that business owners should avoid making. Mm-hmm. And you think, I think, automatically, anybody who's running their own business, pretty smart, they must be doing a great job. But that's not always the case. There's no, things that they forget. Yeah, definitely there, there is. And you know, I really wish there was some crash course the government required everyone to go through before you can suddenly become self-employed so the people understand the requirements because I have so many folks who come in to see me and they just weren't aware. You know, they've got to remit GST, for example, or they've mm. got to register this or that trademark or the, you know, there's a bunch of hoops they have to jump through. That, hey, they're like, why didn't anybody tell me? I'm like, well, I don't know. I wish there was some, you know, a better crash sure. course, so to speak, of being self-employed. Um, but I think usually where people get a lot of advice is when they're setting up a business, they want to minimize their personal liability. So, you know, quite often they'll incorporate, they'll create a corporation, you know, even if they're a tradesperson or a realtor, you know, just a kind of a one man or woman operation, um, they incorporate to create some legal separation, to have a separate entity that is the business so that it's not themselves. Yeah. But then sometimes the actions that they take, it really frustrates that separation between the business. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but they end up incurring personal liability. And if something happens to the business, even though they thought they'd set it up the right way, they can still have some personal hangovers or personal debt effects that can be a big issue for them to deal with. Wow, that's really important information. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first thing you say, procrastinate. Yeah, so this is a big mistake that I see people make is, you know, obviously just putting off what you know 
know you should do to another day. So sometimes this comes into, you know, really procrastinating on some of the big business decisions of really understanding, is your business still viable or not? Um, a lot of people, when they come in to see me, I ask them, you know, can I see a business plan? Can I see your next cash flow statement? And they, they haven't put that together. They've been procrastinating on doing that. Um, but what they have been doing is they've just been trying to sell more, to deliver more, to, you sure. know, to try to make up things on volume, but they procrastinated really looking at the business from a hard perspective and really understanding, are there some difficult decisions that need to be made? Almost every entrepreneur that I've met with, they would say they held on too long. You know, they kept their staff on for too long. They kept their contracts on for too long. Um, they injected too much money for too long. They just procrastinated towards a difficult decision. Got it. Uh, and that sort of goes into the next one, that there wasn't really good planning mm-hmm. or they didn't plan everything. Yeah, and uh, most people, when they start off a business, they put together a business plan, um, but then the business plan often sits on the shelf and they don't manage towards it. They don't check it. So um, I wor- once worked with a great business mentor and he said the way that he would assess an entrepreneur is say, don't show me your business plan today. Show me your business plan for three years ago and show me how you've tracked towards it. Oh, that means that it's real, right? So all the planning that you've done, if you're not you know, doing budget to actual every month, understanding your variances, if you're not really operating with a cash flow forecast, um, you're driving blind. You know, you've got just so little vibe, very, uh, visibility ahead of you that something coming down the road, you might not see it until it's too late. Fair enough. So I see a lot of you know, energy put into the operations of the business, but sometimes you need to get yourself out of the operations and actually go a level up and plan what's the next one, two, five years looking like and do we have a viable path or are we trending in a direction where some hard decisions now are going to help us in avoiding a lot of pain later on. Got it. And I guess borrowing more too because uh, credit, it's pretty easy. If you've got a thing, if you've got Mm -hmm. an entity, the banks are going to go out of their way to loan you money because Mm -hmm. they're going to make money. Yeah. at the end of the day. In many cases, that, right? that's the case. I mean, that's got to yeah. be their motivation. Yeah, sometimes as an entrepreneur, it can be very difficult to get any financing from banks unless you've got some assets to pledge. Sure. But if you do have assets to pledge, then yes, you're right. They will definitely advance okay. you probably more than more money than you need as long as they, they feel secured about it. Fair enough. But the thing to keep in mind here is, you know, there's the old adage, if you find yourself into a hole, what's the first thing that you do is you stop digging. So I see a lot of individuals where they knew the business was in debt and they just kept incurring more debt, you know, to keep up on minimum payments or to try something new or so on and so forth. So the first thing to do to stop a money problem is you've got to stop the borrowing. So one of the big pitfalls that I see is people just view, okay, if I can just get another injection of financing, another from family and friends or sell off another personal asset to invest, that's going to get me through this next milestone. But they don't realize that, you know, the next milestone coming after then is going to require more cash and all they're doing is just bleeding their personal resources. Right. And that's when that's that for the next one then mm-hmm. is putting their own personal resources into the hole. Yeah. In this case. And, and that can be heartbreaking, right? Sure. Because quite often it's a business that the person's, you know, developed over a period of months or years at, at least, and they feel a lot of sense of identity, a sense of self-worth in it. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, and it's like a baby, that it's right? it's not going well, right? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's just, oh, I know next year is going to be better. And when you look back at the last two or three years, they've all been similar, but it's just this eternal optimism. And usually to be an entrepreneur, you got to have a pretty thick skin. You got to be able to take all the arrows that are coming at you and bounce them off and 
move forward and really get through adversity, um, but you've got to also be realistic. And if it's to the point where you are injecting personal resources into it, if you're taking money from your home equity line to invest into the business, you've got to understand that that money might not get paid back because as soon as it goes into the business, it's on par with all the other creditors and you can't necessarily drag that money out easily. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, the shows where they, where, where you as an entrepreneur are in front of a bunch of people who have mm-hmm. a lot of money that want to invest. And there's some very key questions they always ask everybody right off the bat. Yeah. And if you don't have those right answers within the first minute or so, they just go, yeah, not interested because, mm-hmm. you know, you couldn't, you're, you over-evaluated your company. Yeah, or, the valuation is always key, right? Really key. Yeah. And making money is not easy. No. Like in, in any context, any circumstance, it's much easier to have a business fail than it is to have it succeed. So there's a number of ways where things can go wrong all the time. And it's really hard to step aside. And sometimes getting an independent view can help. You know, if there's an accountant or a financial advisor or someone that you trust, you know, show them the book, show them the business plan, you know, what's their opinion on how the business is going. Um, but your business plan can't be based on, you know, just estimates and assumptions and, you know, views of the future that are completely different from the past. Got it. Delaying payments to Canada Revenue. Yeah, this Never one, a good idea, folks. This one comes last, but it's definitely the most important one. It's where I see people really have the worst experience is that as soon as you're starting to use Canada Revenue Agency's funds in your business, um, you've essentially rung the death bell, so to speak. So the government says if you are starting to use GST funds, for example, so if you sell something and you retain uh, GST, you're supposed to remit that to the government. It's money you hold in trust. Right Now, a lot of entrepreneurs, if they're short on cash, they start to use those GST funds in their operations. And the government says the day you start to do that is the day you should be closing your doors and be out of business to the point that if any GST funds aren't recovered from the business, you are personally liable for them. So you as an individual might think you've set up this incorporated business. It's great. I've got a short-term cash flow issue. I'm just going to use some GST funds and hopefully they'll be there in the future. If you can't keep the government whole on GST, dollar for dollar, that money has to come personally from the director of the corporation. And that's when you talked about when we first started this segment, that that uh, that uh, that gray area where mm-hmm. you're starting to cross over between personal exactly. and company, or you call it frustrate that division. And yeah. that's, that's a good por- place where that happens. Yeah. Two other big ways that happens. So GST is a big one. Another yeah. is with employee source deduction. Mm-hmm. So when you pay your employees, you have to withhold their taxes, CPPEI. Yes. That money has to go to Canada Revenue Agency. And if it doesn't, same thing, you're using government trust funds in your accounts, um, not allowed to do so, and personally, you would be held 100% liable for it. Excellent. Or not excellent, but I understand. It's what good. You're it's good to know, right? Yeah, so, good to know. So if you're at the point I can make payroll, but I can't remit to the government, you need to be shutting down the operation at that point and understanding all you're doing is now putting yourself personally more at risk. And it's and that's kind of the overall thought too, right? Like if you're having to take these actions, you're in trouble, and it's about just sort of facing that fact mm-hmm. that you need to take more action than this kind of band aid. Band-Aid on the side of the boat where it's leaking. Yeah, and you know, there could be a great outcome here. You know, there could be you start up a new business, a proprietorship, you restructure the debts of the old corporation. There can be a great future, but sometimes it's with a different vehicle, not the same incorporated business. If you're hearing this information for the first time and you're thinking, yikes, I need to do something about it, here's here's a good place to start. Go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Loads of good information for you to take the next step. That next step might be calling one 800 661 
888-900-3030 to get that consultation, that first free consultation to see if this is a situation you need some assistance from a licensed insolvency trustee, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we're talking about a consumer proposal and the misconceptions. There's some myths about them, stuff. I mean, this for some people, this is a brand new concept. Yeah. For a lot of folks, right? Yeah, it I is think a brand new concept. The majority of folks that I sit down with, they've never heard the term before, or maybe they've heard it, but they don't know what it means. You know, I went to business school. I worked in, you know, one of the biggest accounting firms in, in the country here, and I hadn't heard about a consumer proposal until about five years into practice when just, you know, by chance I saw, you know, a professional article explaining it. So, you know, if professional folks who are in finance don't know about consumer proposals, the odds are individuals don't know much or anything about them at all. Right. All right. Well, let's sort of run through some of these myths and hopefully we'll we'll be able to answer uh, a whole bunch of questions or, or concerns or, or queries that you may have about them. First of all, consumer proposals, lengthy and costly. Yeah, so let, let's talk first, you know, just level set, what is a consumer proposal? Sure, okay. and, and what a consumer proposal is, is it's meant to be a compromise. So it's meant to be a win-win between you and the people that you owe money to. So what happens when you make a consumer proposal, and you can only do this through a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, is we have to figure out what can you reasonably afford to repay on your debts, right. okay? Because in a perfect world, your creditors want 100% of their money, and they want all the interest on top of that every single month until it's paid off. Okay. And that's what we're sort of, oh, yeah. we're told, right? I mean, if you go into debt, you owe somebody this, that's what you got to pay them back, yeah. plus whatever interest you've agreed to. So most people think, just as you said, Elaine, there's no option here. Right. And the consumer proposal is your option. So exactly. it's your option to say, you know what? I can't afford to pay all this back and I definitely can't afford to pay it back at 18% interest. So the way a proposal works is we figure out working with a trustee ourselves, what can you afford to pay back? Usually it's about 30% of the debt. And so not 100% or even close to it. Usually it's about 30%. And it's with no further costs, no further interest charges, nothing like that. And you pay it off over a period of time up to three to five years. So the first myth that a consumer proposal is lengthy and costly couldn't be more untrue. The lengthy and costly thing is to continue to pay the interest every month and never pay the debts off. Um, By law, a consumer proposal can only cost as much as you can afford. And obviously, if you can't afford to do a consumer proposal, if you owe a million dollars and you can't pay back a third of that, well, we get that. This isn't an option for you. But quite often, a consumer proposal is what you can afford, so it's not costly. And the length by law, the maximum term is five years. So we're not talking the never-never plan here. And many people, they're able to pay off their proposals much sooner than five years. Our average duration is about three and a half, four years on a proposal. Okay. Um, They don't, and uh, let's define what a government debt is. First, mm-hmm. and then I'll ask, and then I'll give you the myth, and then you can dispel it. Yeah. So a government debt is anything you owe to the lovely folks who make this country the great place it is to live in. So things like student loans, um, income tax, you know, EI overpayments, perhaps, um, you know, some social benefit overpayments could be, but for the most part, it's income taxes and it's student loans. Okay. 
consumer proposals don't cover those kinds of debts. That's that's the myth that mm-hmm. we want to dispel. Yeah, and Elaine, the number of folks I have who I'm sitting down and maybe I'm 40 minutes into a consultation, I think I've worked out a solution here, and then you know towards the end of the meeting they say, oh, and I also owe the government, you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars. But I know nobody can ever reduce government debt. There's nothing you guys can do with that. And I say, no, absolutely, we could do it six ways to Sunday. I can reduce government debt the same as every single other debt. I think it's really important to repeat that because it's shocking to me. I remember when I heard that for the first time, especially like, you know, Canada Revenue. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. You think, you know, that that you're just done for, that you owe this, you owe this, you owe this, and the interest and whatever it is they tell you, you have to pay, you have to pay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every day I meet with folks who they've got, you know, an assessment from Canada Revenue Agency. Maybe it's valid. Maybe it's not accurate or not. They could take 10 years and try to fight it in tax court, and the government can afford far greater lawyers than anyone of us could afford. Right. Um, Or they can figure out that a consumer proposal takes away any special status for government debt. If you owe Visa $10,000 and you owe the government $10,000, they are treated exactly the same. The government doesn't get more of a vote on your proposal. They don't get the right to veto your proposal. If everybody else you owe money to is saying yes on the proposal, quite often the government is dragged along for the ride and they can't say no. Now, did you mention the percentage when you have a whole series of creditors out mm-hmm. there, uh, what percentage is needed for this to be approved? Right. And that, that's hugely important. So we don't need everybody to agree. So if you're trying to do something informally, if you're trying to say, hey, you know what, I can do this proposal thing myself. I'm going to phone up everybody that I owe money to. I'm going to say, hey, charge me no further interest and let me pay back 30%. I say, yeah, you can try it, but what if somebody, you know, if you've got 10 creditors, what if one of them won't play ball? You haven't solved your problem because that one creditor can still sue you, can still harass you, can do all these things to you. The great, the beauty of a proposal is that the law is structured that everybody wants this deal to get done. So all we need is 50% by dollar value, not a majority in number, just 50% by dollar value. So if you owed $20,000, as soon as I get $10,000 of that debt on side on the proposal, the proposal is automatically approved. The other 49% who may not like the proposal, it's too bad, so sad. This is the way the law is structured and the individual has the right to make a deal with at least 50% of the dollar value. Really important piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, consumer proposals are the same as credit counseling. Yeah. Yeah, not really. No, it's a really murky situation, right? If you see somebody advertising, you know, quite often they would say, you know, we're a not-for-profit charitable service, we're out, you know, in the community, we're a credit counselor, come and see us before you'd see a trustee, okay? And not to say don't go and get advice from everybody out there, but make sure that you include a trustee um, basically in your, you know, sphere of people that you're going to talk to, because only a trustee can do a consumer proposal, and a consumer proposal is night and day different to what a credit counselor can do for you. What a credit counselor can do because they don't have the ability to use the law. So only a trustee can do a consumer proposal because that's basically in federal law. That's the role that can do it. If you're working with a credit counselor individually, they'll go and try to make deals to freeze interest, but that's it. They can't reduce your debt. They can't bring you down to, you know, the 30% repayment, no interest, no charges, give you time to pay. Only a trustee can do that. So what a credit counselor will normally do is what's called a debt management plan. So it's kind of debt management plan versus a consumer proposal. Two big differences, and these are incredibly important to note. One is in a debt management plan, you have to pay back everything. 100% of the debt, maybe a freeze on interest, but that's it. Compared to a consumer proposal, often 30% repayment or thereabouts. 
The other big, really important thing is everyone's very concerned about their credit rating impact. And you would think if you do a credit counseling plan and you pay back everything, your credit report is going to be better than if you did a consumer proposal and you only paid back a third. You would be wrong. They're exactly the same. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's no, there's, there is no advantage. I can see no advantage at this point. I can see no advantage either. Okay. So I would say to folks that, you know, with full information, if you are you know more than capable of paying back all the debts and you just need an interest freeze, that's when credit counseling can make sense for you. But keep in mind, if you go and see a credit counselor, they want to sell you a debt management plan. They might not make a proposal sound attractive. They might tell you things like, you know, there's upfront fees or different things like that. Definitely do your own research. Talk to a trustee. Almost every case when I've explained that to someone, they said, well, why would I ever choose this? And I said, well, yeah, you probably wouldn't. All you needed was the right information. Now, since you brought it up, let's just cover off the fee structure too, because I think that's a really important piece of this because Mm -hmm. folks listen and they go, oh, sounds too good to be true. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But in fact, let's talk about the fee. So Mm -hmm. I've come to you. I've got this huge debt. We do a consumer proposal. I've got it all figured out that uh, over the next two and a half or three and a half years, I can pay off my big debt with a small amount or or with a manageable amount of money I'm going to pay each month. How do you get paid? Right. So do I charge you anything extra? No, is the answer. So everything a trustee does, as I said, it's all governed by law. And when you file a consumer proposal, um, the trustee has to send that proposal out for voting. And almost always it gets accepted. So generally at the time of filing the proposal, you make the first month's payment. So if the proposal, most proposals are, you know, two to $400 a month, something like that, you'd make a payment of two to $400 or so, and then the trustee would send the proposal out to make sure it's approved. So essentially, we ask you, if you say you can make this monthly payment, you know, on a five-year basis to pay this off, make it once, and we'll do the proposal for you. That That's it. No big upfront fees. If you hear somebody say a trustee won't even look at you until you pay $1,500, it's a lie, plain, or simp- plain and simple. We've never done that in 27 years of practice. And because you're not allowed to. Right. right. The law governs what you can charge. Oh, yeah. The law governs what you can charge. Trustees have some discretion, you know, to charge less, but could never charge more. Right. So, you know, even in my situations, if someone, you know, they've just had their wages seized. I had someone this morning, you know, has about $10 in the bank. They're in a very tough situation. I'm filing the proposal with no payment. I'm saying, you know what, we're going to get this thing approved. You're going to get paid in two weeks from now. Just pay me then. It'll all true up in the end. The person wants this proposal to work. I know they're going to pay it off in the end. So we will take a risk with the client as well. We'll take, you know, one payment or even zero payments just to make sure we get a deal. Right. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, same as bankruptcy, consumer proposals. What Can we outline the differences? Yeah. So they're both governed under federal law. They're both administered by trustees, but that's essentially where a lot of the similarities end. So first off, a consumer proposal is not a bankruptcy. So, you know, if you've ever been asked on a credit application or, you know, a rental application, have you ever filed for bankruptcy? If you file a consumer proposal, you can say no to that question every day of the week and, and be accurate. So not a bankruptcy. It does impact your credit, but it's not as severe as what a bankruptcy would be. Again, it's the same as if you did a credit counseling plan and paid everything off, but you got a break on the interest. You're making a negotiated reduced payment arrangement. So not great for your credit, but something you can absolutely recover for. Many people, even while they're still in the proposal, they find themselves getting offers. If you know credit cards, secured credit cards, things like that, you'll rebuild quicker than what you think. 
Right, and that answers this, the uh, the next myth that consumer proposals ruin your credit permanently. That's mm-hmm. just not the case. Absolutely not the case. What ruins your credit credit permanently is if you don't deal with the issue. If all you're doing is paying minimums forever, you know you might have a fine credit rating, but what's that ever going to do for you? You know, most of the time people want to get a mortgage, and if you can't save a down payment because all your money is going to interest each month, well, then your credit rating isn't doing a whole lot for you. I'd like you to sort of toot your own horn for just a minute as we wrap this up. Um, it's not just uh, the consumer proposal plan and and focus and that that you that you have with your clients when they walk in the door. They get a little bit more than that too. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about that as we wrap this up? Yeah, what I, what I'm proud about at Sands and Associates is we treat everybody with respect, with dignity, with empathy. We know that any of us could be on the other side of the table. They're having a debt problem that they need help with. So, you know, we try to solve as much of the problem as we can. You know, finances are sometimes just one piece of a bigger issue, but you can guarantee that you'll feel respected, you'll feel validated, you won't feel judged when you come in to talk about a proposal. And if it's not the right option for you, you know, by law, I have to tell you that, hey, I don't think this is the right option for you. Here's some other resources that you can connect with. Um, Generally, people have a great experience in our consultations. That's great. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin. You've been listening to Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get a financial fresh start. Uh, Easy to get a free consultation in any of their offices. 1-800-661-3030 is the number and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk a lot about uh, consumer proposals and bankruptcy, and bankruptcy is always a bit of a scarier word because mm-hmm. it's been around for a long time and it means all kinds of things or it has a lot of uh, emotions attached Absolutely, to it. Yeah. So so this segment's called Five Things You Didn't Know About Bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing what this segment's all about. Yeah. What are they? Well, it, it's funny because a lot of people, when they come into my office, they've already self-diagnosed and they said, you know, don't even talk to me about bankruptcy. I know what that's all about. Someone comes to my ah. house, they, they tear everything out, they, you know, they they tell all my neighbors, they put me in the newspaper, I don't want any sort of that. I lose my house, my clothes, my car, exactly. I have to move. Yeah, yeah, or if I go bankrupt, I'll never get credit again. And, you yeah. know, usually my response to that is with a little bit of a half smile. I'm like, okay, are you asking me or telling me? Yeah. Because I'm going to tell you a bunch of things that are at odds here. And, you know, essentially you're going to have to decide who you believe. Yeah. Uh, but there's so much misinformation that's out there. So I thought today, let's talk about five things you might not know about bankruptcy. Some of them aren't myths or just, you know, little arcane points, but I think it'll help our listeners really understand the remedy of bankruptcy is typically not what you think. There's a whole lot more positivity. Um, you know, I've heard someone say about a trustee, you know, similar to an anesthesiologist, you could look at an anesthesiologist as the person that puts you to sleep or the person that wakes you back up and puts you back to life. Hmm. I think a trustee is similar to that. <laughs> We're not the person that puts you, you know, um, you know, in the coffin, so to speak. We're the right. person that helps you rebuild, that helps you to start again with no debt and have a greater tomorrow. Well, that's very good. I'm impressed. Oh, well then. <laughs> so the first one, a $1,000 minimum. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, to go bankrupt, you only have to owe $1,000. 
So oh. that usually surprises people because they think there's a much higher bar to access the insolvency system, but it sure. really is just a thousand dollars. Okay, and it's kind of an archaic thing. It came back from you know most bankruptcy legislation in Canada was written around the Great Depression. At that point, you can imagine a thousand dollars was a very a significant debt, huge amount of money. And we have nobody these days that files bankruptcy for a thousand dollars. But I do have individuals that'll do consumer proposals who you know five thousand dollars or eight thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, something like that. So if some Somebody thinks they've got to be so far gone, they've got to owe fifty or a hundred thousand dollars or something like that before a trustee will even talk to them. The answer is no. Under the law, you could have access to the insolvency system if you owed more than a thousand dollars and were not able to pay it. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't know that, mm-hmm. and I've been doing the show for a while. <laughs> yeah, it, well, and in, in some cases, it's so interesting because it's the individual's perspective. You know, some people could have seventy-five thousand dollars of debt and be actually able to manage it okay. They've got, you know, they're psychologically fine. They've got good cash flow. Conversely, somebody could have $5,000 of debt and it might be consuming their life and they all they're doing is paying minimums. They know they're never getting out of debt. Both of those people could need help. That's very interesting. So there's no income cap Mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. So when people come in and they say, well, I've heard in bankruptcy, you can only make a certain amount of money or how much can okay. I actually make? And well, the answer is it's unlimited. The whole point of a bankruptcy is to give you the ability to earn income so that you're able to make some repayment on your debts or at the very least pay the cost of the administration to go through. So whether you're earning $500 a month or $5,000 a month, bankruptcy is definitely an option for somebody. Um, the way a bankruptcy payment is calculated is it's based on ability to pay. So we've talked a lot that if someone is in bankruptcy, they either fall into a category of being low income. And for a single person, that's about the $2,000 a month of income. So if mm-hmm. they're earning below that, they're considered low income, or they're considered not low income if they earn above that. And if somebody is low income, they pay a minimum amount in a bankruptcy over a nine-month period. And if they're not low income, they pay an amount based on their income over a year plus nine months. Okay. So there's a scenario for bankruptcy that would fit basically any income characteristic. Now, it's very very rare for somebody earning, you know, $5,000, $7,000 a month to file a bankruptcy because very often they're able to do a consumer proposal. And any of our listeners will know a consumer proposal is an alternative to bankruptcy. You restructure the debt, you pay off usually a third to a half, no interest charges, and everyone's happy by the end of it. Um, but strictly speaking, if someone had, you know, very significant amounts of debt, sometimes over a million dollars of debt, no matter what their income is, trying to offer a half or a third of such a big number wouldn't be possible. Um, that person could still be eligible for bankruptcy regardless of their monthly income levels. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. What about your credit? I mm-hmm. mean, that is, that's is—that's got to be a fear of people. I mean, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't, then who, who's ever going to take, um, you know, a bit of a risk on you again? Right. And I understand that from a headline level, and that's when people come in, they say, I know if I go bankrupt, I'll never get credit again. And I say, well, let's unpack that a little bit. So how many people in Canada last year do you think went bankrupt or did a consumer proposal? And most people had no idea. And I say, well, it's between 100 and 120,000 people every year. Can you imagine if the whole financial sector wrote off 100 to 120,000 individuals every year and said- Forever. Forever, said, we're never going to do business with them again. We're never going to make a dollar of interest. doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Right. So for a period of 20 years, what's that, 2 million people? Yeah. What's that, a pretty big proportion of the adult population in Canada? Yeah. So it's a complete myth that the financial institute institutions will not do business with you again. What's going to happen is obviously they're going to be a bit gun shy at first. So if you've been into bankruptcy, you had $25,000 of debt and a bunch of credit cards, the day that you're discharged from that bankruptcy, don't expect that you're going to get approved from the same credit that you had before. Sure. You've obviously just came through a proceeding where you've scrubbed off the debt, but the impact of that is going to last for a few years 
years after. So for someone who's never been bankrupt before, the bankruptcy is going to purge from their credit, so it'll be like it never happened six years after it's finished. So it doesn't mean they're untouchable for six years, but definitely after those six years, if someone pulls a credit report, they won't even see that a bankruptcy has been filed. But realistically, if someone's got reasonable income, they're paying all their bills on time, the cell phone bills, the hydro, everything counts every month, it's usually a two to three year period where the person is reestablishing credit. And after that, they could get a mortgage. See, that's significant, two to three years, right? A lot less than what you would think. And I work through the scenario with individuals and say, okay, let's keep doing what you're doing and let's see how quickly you'll get this debt paid off and how quickly you can save a down payment and how quickly you'll be able to get that mortgage that you want. And then let's do another scenario. If if we go through a bankruptcy or a proposal, we write off all the debt, you start saving money while you're rebuilding your credit. In every scenario I've ever looked at, that person is so much better off to get rid of the debt, to take the hit on their credit, but start saving the money and rebuild their credit. It's a much better plan. Excellent. What about assets if you go into bankruptcy? Yeah, a lot of people think you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. Um, almost everybody keeps all of their assets while they go through bankruptcy. See, and that's so important to yeah. know because it's it's movies, it's television shows, it's books, it's yeah. all of that that you know the person's just wiped out and that's it. They're yep. they're you know they're they're walking through town with a little knapsack on their back with nothing in it. Exactly, and that's you know the headline understanding of bankruptcy is you lose everything, but there's provincial legislation that says okay, if the bankruptcy act says you got to give everything to the trustee the province of BC says, well, hold on, you get to keep a vehicle. You get to keep your tools of the trade. You get to keep your RRSPs, Mm -hmm. which most people don't know. You get to keep all of your clothing, anything you need for medical purposes. You get to keep all your household furniture, everything that's in your apartment or your house. I'm not showing up to inventory or to take it out. You get to keep all of that stuff. So, you know, yeah, if you got the speedboat or the yacht and you got a bunch of debts, sorry, that might have to get sold. But the vast majority of people, when they come to see a trustee, they've sold anything that could reasonably be used to pay their debts. Um, And the other assets that they have, they're typically able to retain either through a bankruptcy or a proposal proceeding. Yeah, they don't want you out on the street. No, no. There's certain base level of, of, you know, even dignity as a Canadian, as an individual. You know, if you think about someone coming and inventorying your assets, making it a public record, um, you know, it's it's not an experience people would want to go through. Okay. So what's the last one? It's called Yes, It Covers. Yeah. So a lot of the times they'll be sitting down with somebody and we'll go through everything about their debts and then they'll say, oh, I've also got this debt, but I know you guys can't help with that. I'm like, okay, tell me more. What, what do we have here? Um, so some people assume that bankruptcy doesn't cover debts with Canada Revenue Agency. It absolutely does. Tax debt has no special status um, in bankruptcy legislation. If you do a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, your tax debt can be dealt with. Uh, Student loans is another one, uh, where as long as it's been more than five to seven years since you've been a student, so you can't graduate and the next day decide to get rid of the student loan, you have to make a good faith effort to work and earn income. But after it's been the five to seven years, you can deal with a student loan as well. Um, MSP debt. So again, it's a government debt. We can deal with that. And even debt where you might feel incredibly guilty that you incurred it, like maybe there's a gambling addiction or some speculation, that type of debt can still be dealt with in a bankruptcy as long as you've shown you've taken the steps to deal with the underlying issue. And see, that's why it's so important to go see someone like Blair, a licensed insolvency trustee, because they'll actually work with you and help you figure that out and sort of allay all those fears, uh, crazy fears, yeah, when it comes right down to it, right? There's almost no Nobody I've met where their understanding is any 
worse than, than what it actually is. So in many cases, their understanding is so far worse and I'm able to bring them back to something that's fairly reasonable and it's a good option for them. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.